on that note, friends, I'm excited to preach today, our third installment in this Crucial Conversation series. Would you join with me as we pray? Gracious God, I thank you so much that you are good, that you are with us and you are here. Lord, would you speak to us today? I thank you that your word never returns void. So Father, shape us, form us in your likeness. And may we become more and more like Jesus. I pray for less of me and more of you right now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Friends, uh, quick confession. If you see my hand just shifting around nervously in the first service, I hopped up and my fly was completely down um, for the first five minutes. And people were really silent and paying attention. I didn't realize um, that the whole front row were looking this way because they were really worried that something was going to happen. But my mum, who's producing for us today, came, she sent a message down the back. She said, your fly's down. So I had to do this. It was a great moment. And, um, and everyone laughed and was completely distracted from what God was going to do. So focus on today. And I want to start with a story about one of my favorite movies. This would be in my top 10 of all time. And it's a movie that stars Will Ferrell. Now I say that because I don't like Will Ferrell that much as an actor because you know usually his movies I feel were written by teenagers who have jokes in bathrooms, that kind of things. But this movie was really beautiful and he, he acts so well in it. It's called Stranger Than Fiction. Has anyone seen this movie, Stranger Than Fiction? Guys, no one's hands came up. Hopefully someone's online. Me and James, James Casino and I love this movie a lot. It follows the story of a guy named Harold Crick. And Harold Crick is an IRS agent that lives a boring life. He's got a job, steady income. He owns a house and he goes day in, day out doing the exact same boring things. Until one day he wakes up and Harold Crick starts brushing his teeth in the mirror and then Emma Thompson's voice starts narrating his life but he doesn't know where the voice comes from. This voice comes across and says, Harold Crick was a boring man brushing his boring teeth. And he's like, what? Where's the voice come from? And as the movie unfolds, this voice continues to narrate his life. Everything he's done is predicted first by this voice narrating in his mind. He thinks he's going crazy. Until one day he wakes up and the voice says this, little did Harold know that he was about to die. And he's like, what? Hang on, wait. I'm about to die? And he gets seized by this moment when his story is about to change forever. He goes to Robert De Niro, who's this, who's this English literature professor, and he says, I don't, what's going on? And Robert De Niro says, well, if we've got to know how this story ends, we've got to know what kind of story you're in. Are you in a great romance, in a comedy or a tragedy? And they find out that he's actually probably in a tragedy because he's going to die very soon. And so once he realises, this is what the important part is, the story that he is in, he changes everything about his life. He quits his job. He starts giving away money. He takes up guitar lessons, dates the girl of his dreams and lives a life that he'd always wanted. And what shifted? What shifted was the story he believed he was in. And I say that today because I want to ask you a question. Do you know what story you're in? Do you want to know what story you're living out? Is it a tragedy? I pray we all have a great romance one day. Is it a comedy? My life feels like a comedy after the 8 a.m. service sometimes. But what kind of story are you in? Because here's what I know. Howard Crick was living his story a certain way and in a certain means because the pressures around him was telling him that his story had to look like a safe job, a nice house, and a steady income. And I think that's sometimes our lives as well. 
that our stories are formed by the pressures of the world around us. You may be like, oh, I don't know if that's true, Michael. But if you remember a couple of years ago, back in 2016, Cambridge Analytica, it came out that this data company from um, overseas actually bought a whole bunch of people's information from Facebook. And they sold that information to Russia, to America, to marketing agencies. And what these companies and these governments did is they used your Facebook profile to target you with ads and streams of information that would shape your behavior and how you live out your life. They would use streams of information to invoke fear, then cause people to vote a certain way, to buy certain things. And maybe you're here today being like, I'm living my own story, but the truth I've experienced in my world is that the society around us places pressure on us that our story would look a certain way. Do you know what kind of story you are in? Because I think this doesn't affect us in any way so prolifically as with our finances. What we do with our money and our generosity is ultimately defined by the story we believe we're a part of. See, the early Christians knew this. Something transformed their life. It wasn't Emma Thompson's voice saying, little did they know that one day they would die. No, it was the interaction with a man named Jesus and His Holy Spirit that transformed their whole story. It transformed their whole position on stewardship and finances. So much so that a historian now writes this about the early Christians. He says, the ancient world, not the early Christians, the ancient world was generous with their bodies and stingy with their money. The Christians, however, were stingy with their bodies and generous with their money. And it was these Christians who made an impact and lasting impression on history. Why? Because they knew what story they were a part of. They knew that they were not about to build their kingdom, but the kingdom. And the reason why I say this today, friends, is to ask you, what story are you a part of? What story is your life building? The last couple of weeks, we've been in this Crucial Conversation series. I started the series off talking about God and the environment. How do we interact with climate change and all these pressures in our world? Last week, Pastor Alex came and he spoke about this idea of digital and, and the, what does it look like to have real relationship in an age of overabundance digital connection. And this week, I want to talk about abundance. What does it look like to be, have wise stewardship in an age of scarcity? What does it mean for us to have wide stewardship in an age of scarcity? Maybe you're sitting here today being like, I wish someone told me they were talking about money. There's 50 other places I could have been right now. That's exactly why we didn't tell you what we were talking about this week. Because we don't like talking about money. We avoid it. In fact, I guarantee you after today, someone will send me an email that will have this tagline, the church always talks about money. And I actually don't think that's true. I just don't think we like to have these conversations. But remember the first week? Crucial conversations are not the conversations we want to have, but the ones we believe God is calling us into for good discipleship. Jesus was, we found this central. In fact, in, in the book of Luke, we read in chapter 12, he's confronted by someone in a crowd who says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me as judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It's an interesting moment when Jesus says this, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Do you, have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't say that about knowing anything else? He never says, watch out, be on guard against adultery. You want to know why? Because most people know when adultery is taking place in their life. They, when they wake up in bed next to someone that's not their partner, they don't have to work out what just happened there. 
But in this moment, Jesus is very clear about greed. Why? Because greed in our society is this dark, poisonous, hidden thing that is so hard to detect when it's taking place in our life. And Jesus has this challenge. You are more than the sum of your possessions. That is not the message of our world, right? We are our latest purchase, the car we drive, the clothes we wear, the school we send our kids to, the amount of money in our account. But Jesus offers a revolutionary, different idea. And he says, no, 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 be on guard against this stuff. Why? Because friends, I believe this more than ever, that greed is prolific in our world and it is breaking our world. And Jesus believed this too. For those of you sitting here being like, man, I don't know if we needed a whole sermon on money or the whole sermon on generosity. Well, Jesus actually spoke about money more often than we do. 15% of all Jesus' teachings in the Bible were on money. One out of every 10 of the red letter scriptures were about money. 16 out of the 38 parables that Jesus spoke to were about handling generosity, greed, and money. If we don't want to talk about money, it's not because Jesus shares our opinion. He spoke about money more than he did sex. But we seem to be okay talking a bit more about sex than money these days. Why? Because I think Jesus knew the power of this stuff. And he knew that money can actually threaten your relationship with him and your well-being. Sometimes I think we don't want to talk about this stuff because the natural disposition of our hearts is we want to protect our king. We want to protect our master and we want to protect our Lord. And the problem is, is that maybe that king and master and Lord isn't Jesus, but our possessions. And we're against anything that would threaten that. And maybe that's just me, but that's how I feel. When anyone talks about generosity, I'm like, whoa, 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 that's out of bounds for you, sir. Why? Because I don't want to admit that sometimes that's a greater control on my life than I'm aware of. So we're going to step into a story today. But the hope that I would want to answer is just this simple question. What would it be look like if you were to be known for generosity? What would it look like if you were to be known for generosity? What would they say in history about us? Imagine if they said they were stingy with most things, but with, genero- with their money, boy, they were abundantly generous. What a thing to have been said about our generation. So I want you to come with me to Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is in the temple and He kind of takes a moment to reflect and compare two kinds of people. In the first part of Luke chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus reflects with His disciples on the Pharisees and the religious people. As He taught, Jesus said this, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for a show, and for a show, many lengthy prayers. Many lengthy prayers. These men will be punished more severely. Now, at this moment, Jesus hasn't mentioned finances. Jesus hasn't mentioned money. So, is this really about generosity? One thing I've come to know and believe is that greed and generosity are not just about bank accounts and dollar signs. That greed is a lifestyle, not an amount in your bank. Greed is a way that we look at the world. And what Jesus is criticizing here is a group of men who wanted more position. They wanted more acclaim. They wanted nicer clothes so people could see who they were and their religious purity. They wanted the best seat at the the table at every banquet they went to. And they didn't care if it meant the subjugation of the needy, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Jesus heightens what greed is. It's not just about wanting more money. 
Greed is when we say, I want more recognition. I deserve more wealth. I want more possessions no matter what the cost. Greed is a position of the heart that relentlessly says, I don't have enough. It's the position of the heart that says, I deserve more. Or even this, I owe me. I owe me. I've earned this. To this voice, Jesus often warns us. In fact, in the book of Mark, chapter, Matthew chapter 6, he says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In this moment, Jesus says you can only serve one, either Jesus or God. Every heart has a master. Every heart has a king. Every life protects its master and king because we are great chess players with our life and we know how the game works, that we protect it from what would threaten its existence. Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, is a great resource if you want to delve further into this, says this, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex. It almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. When was the last time you got together with your small group and you said, hey, can we, let's just chat about greed. That's not what we do, right? We're like, hey, can we just talk about, you know, transgender stuff that's going on or, or the sexual ethic of our day? Or I'd love to chat about Russia right now. Like, let's pray. But when was the last time you got together with a group of Christians and be like, I feel like God wants us to be really challenging each other on greed. It doesn't happen, right? Therefore, Keller writes, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. Why? Because greed hides so deeply. No one should be confident that it is not a problem for them. If we're not careful, we can allow greed to become the Lord of our life and we hide it behind the worship of Jesus. As long as Jesus doesn't infringe upon the boundaries of our real king, then he can stay. So how do we know that we're maybe struggling with greed? Well, Keller goes on, he says this, how do you know that money isn't just money to you? Here are some of the signs. You can't give away large amounts of it away. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you, and even though you might have worked hard or might be a better person, it gets under your skin. And when that happens, you have one foot in the trap because it's then it's no longer a tool, it's a scorecard. It's your essence, your identity. No matter how much money you have, though it's not intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to keep you from God. When money becomes our master, we only allow God to be a part of our lives, friends, as long as he obeys our inner desires for more. Greed, therefore, is one of the most pervasive, pervasive sins of our modern era and one of the most unchallenged parts of our life. And can I just be honest? Maybe, maybe I'm the only one here, but I struggle with greed. I like what money can buy. I like the comfort it brings when there's more in my account rather than less. But I know this, that it is greed that has broken God's world. It is greed that breaks my heart. And it's greed that leads me away from Christ and into building my own kingdom that will demise, that will fall, that will fail. J.D. Greer says this, Whose kingdom are you building, God's or yours? This is where Jesus starts. Be aware of the Pharisees who are just hungering for more of everything. And then it says in verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And watched the crowd putting their money into the temple's treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. You know, there's a moment here that we read in this story that Jesus goes into the temple and he sits down in a thing that would be kind of awkward for us. Maybe you're here today, you're new to church, and you're like, nah, I came on the day that they were talking about money. I, I don't want to, why did I come? This is why I don't like Christians. 
And, and I just want to suggest that what we're doing today is something God's put on my heart. I just sense God wants to set people free from greed. I sense God really wants to set people free from greed. That's a controlling power that God doesn't want you to have for your life. And we enter into this moment where Jesus goes, I'm going to enter into a teaching time. He goes and sits down and watches people giving their, their generosity towards the temple. Now, this is a bit weird because literally what's happening, it would be like this. Imagine if I put like this massive bucket down the front and I said, friends, we're now going to enter into a time of giving. So when you're ready, if you would just come and just pop in whatever you're going to give. And I just stood there like this. And when no one moved, I just started to point at you. Yep, let's go. That would be bizarre. Many of you would probably leave our church and I'd probably encourage you to do so because that is not what we're ever going to do. What this is happening is most an ancient custom, not a current day practice in our church. What, in, the, in the temple, part of public worship was your financial, but also your agricultural blessing to God. They would give 10% of everything they had as a reminder. Remember, we talked about this week one, that everything in the Lord's is God's, right? And so they would do this as a public display and it would be part of their public worship. And so it wasn't that Jesus was just watching. Everyone would have been able to see what people were giving. But in this moment, there is a problem. As we're talking about greed, the antidote for greed is generosity. But as we say that generosity is the antidote for greed, what we've done inadvertently is we've created a platform. And whenever we create platforms, the heart longs to perform. And performance is not the answer to the problem. As soon as we provide a platform, we provide an opportunity for the heart to perform and we actually start to think that what God wants from us is to be performative in our greed. What does this look like? It looks like people who love letting everyone else know how much they give, who love others to be aware of how generous they are, who love people to be aware that they're, they're totally fine with the left hand knowing what the right hand is doing because isn't it a good thing that I'm more generous than other people? This is just a different form of greed. The commentators actually believe that what was happening in this moment is that rich people were coming along and they were performing for people. These millionaires were coming along and putting $5,000 in, being like, how? I gave $5,000. But how many of us know that $5,000 for a millionaire is nowhere near as generous as $5 with someone that only has 100 But we, we weigh things really differently. Well, one thing I challenge is maybe you're sitting here thinking that I'm, we're after you to be giving an amount away to the world today. I don't think Jesus is after an amount. He's after our hearts. Because our hearts lean towards performance, don't they? We perform in our jobs. We perform in our families. We teach our kids to perform well at school. We're hoping that people, when they look at us, they see a certain image. And if that image isn't there, then we are grieving. But this is just a different way that we're saying, I need more. I need to gain more. I deserve more. How do we know that we're looking more to our performance than to God for our acceptance? We qualify and justify our standing because of what we have done. Maybe you're already there today and you know exactly what it means that as I talk about greed, you're immediately gone to, well, I already give. I give this much and I gave this many times, so I'm good. Maybe you're someone who after today, you're already ready to tell people your position on generosity and giving and how you outwork this in your family. These are things that I think lean towards performance rather than actually to intimacy with God and a private act of worship. See, God uses a different metric. And we see this juxtaposed the next part of the story. In Mark chapter 12, verse 42, we read this. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins with only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has, more, has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything she had to live on. Friends, at the end of the day, the biggest thing we've got to recognize is if the earth is God's and everything in it, then God does not need our generosity. 
Let me just say this very clearly. If you've ever come to this church or you ever go to a church and they make you feel guilty for not giving because, hey, we can't do anything without you, that is not biblical and it is not right. There is one provider for the church. His name is Jesus, and he will build his church with or without you. We need our generosity more than anything. God was blessed by a woman who gave a couple of cents. Why? Because this was always about a heart, not a bank account. See, in this moment, I think we see two things that Jesus wants to celebrate. The place of the woman's trust, and secondly, the state of the woman's heart. The place of her trust and the state of her heart. Let me just unpack that for a moment. This woman was poor, and she gave everything she had. What would it mean for her to give everything she had in this moment? It meant that she needed to surrender the idea. She didn't know where her next meal was coming from. She didn't know what would happen next. But still in this moment, she comes and goes, but I know one practice, the last thing to go in my budget, the last thing that will shift when everything goes hard will be my generosity. Why? Because I believe she knew the God of Scriptures, that in the Old Testament they would call him Jehovah Jireh, which was a Hebrew name for the Lord is our provider. That, that she believed more than anything that God is more worthy of, he, of her trust than the economy. And friends, are we not in a similar moment right now? I turn on the TV. I actually don't have a TV, so that's a lie. I turn, open up the, 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 the news app and, and I read about the housing crisis that, hey, it's going up now, but we're, it's very unstable. We might be on the brink of recession, that the economy is really insecure and we, 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 we should be worried about it. I drive a diesel car. Anyone else drive a diesel car? You know my pain. I don't need to tell you what that means right now. The unlettered people have no understanding what we're walking through. And there's this moment of going, okay, well, things are going up. So we're going to tighten the belt. And, and how can we shift things? But actually, the question I would ask is in moments of insecurity and stability, it's a moment where we actually demonstrate our trust, most importantly of all. And where are you trusting in right now? Where are you trusting this woman came before God and she said, all I have is the Lord's. I give it because I know that only He will hold me up. You see, friends, greed is actually a continuum. Greed and generosity are a continuum. Greed says over here. It'll be on the screen behind me. Greed says over here. It'll be the next one. Greed says over here, how can I get more? But generosity asks a very different question. How can I give more? And, and I, I just want to challenge you today that what I've become to understand about my own heart and the human condition is this. Our hearts are heading in one of these two directions. Sure, we might be generous, but deep down in our heart, the question we're actually asking is, how can I get more though? Yeah, I'll give some away, but how can I get more? And I believe what Jesus wants to challenge us with is that the position of a Christian doesn't actually focus on this question as much as this one. God, how could I afford to give more? How could I afford to give more? And friends, just before you think that what we're talking about here is giving to the local church, I haven't even gone there yet. I'm talking about generosity as a way of living. As a way of living every day at work, with our families, with the world around us. How can I give more? Because here's what we see. This was the controversial position of the early church. That I have more friends who hear about our sexual ethic as Christians, who hear about all of our moral stands that we talk about, the, the Christian moral ethic. But they ask us, if that's the case, then how come Christians are so greedy? And it's so true. 
That the Christian always is trying to go, God, lead my heart in this direction. How can I give more? Because getting more only leads to trying to build and establish our own kingdoms and we're part of a better story, a greater kingdom, serving a better king. Who do you trust today? Who do you trust? Are you seeking to be a gaining person or a giving person? Now, I've heard, used him many times, but my best friend, Timothy Keller, he, he says these great things. No one laughed at that. Timothy Keller is not my best friend. I think I've said it before. I love that joke. I'll say it again another time. Timothy Keller was asked this question. How generous are you, Tim? How generous are you? And in answer, he said this, not generous enough. This is a man who's planted many churches, who lives at a very low yearly wage, and his answer was this, I'm not generous enough yet. And I just want to encourage, I think that's our position. I'm not generous enough yet. My wife and I have many dependents in our household. We have two. feels like we have a lot more than two sometime when you're raising boys. But here's my hope. I don't think we're generous enough yet. I don't think we are. And actually, we always talk about, hey, can we be more generous? And can I be honest? You know the thing that fights our generosity? It's our greed. It's our greed. Kelly goes on to say, lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are God's and not yours. Friends, there's a bad story today. Some of you might be thinking, well, he's going to get to the church part where he's going to tell us all that we've got to give 10% to the local church. So let me show you my hand. I don't actually believe there's anywhere in the New Testament that says you should give 10% to the local church. I actually don't think that's a New Testament commandment at all. And if you've been told that's the standard we must live by, I want to suggest there is no evidence of that in the New Testament scriptures. 10% is an Old Testament principle. It was a way of the Jews practicing agricultural and economic worship, saying, hey, God, everything is yours. We give 10% to you every time, first part of the week. See, the truth is, friends, there's good news and bad news today. The good news is Jesus never asks for 10%. The bad news, it's way worse than that. C.S. Lewis says it like this. It'll be on the screen behind me. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you, you think wicked. The whole outfit, I'll give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become yours. How beautiful is that today? See, the second thing that Jesus saw in her wasn't just the place of her trust. It was the state of her heart. What Jesus does when he comes into our life is he gives us a new heart. A new heart which doesn't go, well, God, if you could just handle my family problems right now, I've got my job, I've got my career, and I'm doing really well with my crypto. So thank you so much. But you, just, you, you, you play over here, Jesus. Jesus comes and says, I'm Lord of it all. Because you being in control of some... That's my alpha alarm still going off. For those of you who knew, we pray at 11.02 every day for alpha. There's this, sense of, there's this sense of Jesus saying, I'm Lord of it all. Not just some. Because you being in control of the sum is how we got here in the first place. What's the state of your heart today? And I just want to encourage you that I think God's calling us into being a people of generosity. So I want to finish today with three questions. The first is this. What is the direction of your heart? Is the direction of your heart so often like mine? 
Can I, as your pastor, just say this? I know you might be like, well, I'm going to a different church. Hey, all power to you. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I really want to get more. <laughs> I can feel it all the time. And so I've got to consciously, almost daily, come before God and say, God, what does it look like to give more? God, change my heart, shift my heart into a position of generosity because the world is pulling me to live this story and you want me to live that story. Second question is this. What would it look like for you to be generous? Where is God prompting your generosity? I want to be clear today. No pastor, no leader should ever tell you where and how you should give. That is the position of God. But I want to ask you, when is the last time you came before the Holy Spirit with open hands and said, Jesus, how are you calling me to be generous? How are you calling me generous? There are three things I think we can be giving towards. In fact, three things I think um, Christians, mature Christians do give towards. The first thing um, is the controversial one. But let me step there boldly. I do believe that Christians are called to give towards the local church. Unashamedly, I believe this. This is how I was raised. It's a pattern I've lived ever since I've had a job, even since I got pocket money. It was like when I got a dollar a week, it was 10 cents at Kids Life. It wasn't Kids Life back then, but you get my drift. Why? It's because it's actually part of our worship. I've spoken to many people who suggest that giving to the local church no longer matters, and, and there is nowhere in Scripture that actually suggests this. I want to pause here and just kind of challenge us on this. Maybe you're new to Christianity today or you're new to church and you're like, ah, he's wanting my money. Can I say, if you don't follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is not for you. You can sit back and just chill. Thank you so much for joining us today. But for those who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, there's a challenge here for us. We believe in Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything's in it. But we also believe there's actually nowhere in the New Testament where God sets an amount. Can I tell you how we know this? In Luke chapter 18, a guy named Craig Blomberg who's written a bunch of thinking around this. In Luke chapter 18, we see Jesus change the narrative. He comes to the rich young ruler and doesn't go, hey, if you want to follow me, just give me 10%. And what does he say? Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Who's ready for that standard? That's okay, because it changes. Then he goes to Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus doesn't sell everything he has. Instead, Zacchaeus is his tax collector who only gives away half of what he has, and Jesus celebrates it. Then there's another moment where he tells a parable about these investors who are good stewards of their money. They invest wisely. They earn a greater income back for the kingdom of God, and he celebrates that. What am I trying to highlight here? When we're trying to set a standard, we're looking to perform rather than to just trust and obey. And my, my challenge would be, when was the last time you came before God open-handedly? He's like, God, what does generosity look like in my life? First, to the church. We see the Apostle Paul, not once does he say, hey, some of you don't have to give. He just kind of assumes it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, we read this, that Paul says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. It's actually so beautiful. It means that, you know, I've heard this story this week of a, of a guy who was homeless and he was so stirred by the generosity of God. He came to the pastor and said, I only have like the food for every week. Could I share that with some of my homeless friends? Is that generosity? And the pastor's like, that's, that's amazing generosity. No one's bank account grew, but a heart shifted. According to what we have, not what we don't have. This isn't a competition, friends. It's a response. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, actually delve into this. I encourage you, go spend some time there if you're struggling with this stuff. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, Paul assumes, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of every week. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. What's Jesus, well, what's Paul highlighting here? That giving to the local people of God is a rhythm. It's something we just do. I just want to encourage you 
that if, that if there's something in your heart as a follower of Christ, where you've been hurt, where the church has done this badly, where you've been promised Ferraris if you would just believe in a pastor's vision with your wallets, I just want to say I'm sorry. But don't let that hold you back from the generosity that God's inviting you to be a part of. Because my, my wife and I, we struggle with this. Every year we get together and we kind of set our yearly budget, just talk about it. And we, we start with our generosity. How much are we going to give? And to be frank, friends, um, we, we do. We, we start at 10%, not because we think we have to, but because we want to challenge, hey, you know what, no matter what, let's give more than, than, than is comfortable for us. And then we go, okay, go over and above this. How much are, we, are you calling us to give this year? That's just my wife's and I's story. But every year we kind of look at that, figure in that amount, we work it out. And we're like, number one, we know God's probably going to you know, challenge us to give more than this throughout the year. Number two, Sarah or I always ask this question. It's like, wow, what could we do if we kept it? And then we're like, oh my gosh, we go to New York. Not really, it's not that much. But like, you know, we could do anything, like a boat maybe, maybe, you know, buy a new, some underwear, who, who knows? I was really trying to be like, wow, he could go to New York on that stuff. Like I'm just like de-escalating that. But then like this other question prompts us and it's like, but what could God do with it if we gave it away? Oh man, so much more than we probably could. So we celebrate that together and we step into that. And it's not easy. My greed screams. I want to teach my heart generosity. So I just want to invite you today. Hey, if you're, a, if you're someone who calls me off home, at the start of this year we did NCLS and we found out that only 30% of people who follow Jesus and call New Life Home give towards the mission of the local church. And I just want to challenge you. There's actually nothing in Scripture that celebrates that. And, and maybe would you just come before God and not before a pastor or anyone else say, God, are you calling us to be generous rhythmically to the local church? But generosity is not just about the church. Praise God. It's also about our world. How can we be generous to others? How can we be generous to other people? There's this great verse in Acts chapter 4 where, where we're hearing about the early church and we read this. We read, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed they had any of their own possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostle continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And then here's the verse. Hear this. This is amazing. In the next one it says, That there was no needy persons among them. God's grace was so evidently at work amongst them. How did they know that God's grace is at work amongst them? Well, they were baptizing people. That's not what the Word says. More people coming to Alpha. Nope. Well, there's a whole bunch of people slain in the Spirit down the front row. Some of you are like, what's slain in the Spirit? Stick around. Come to Naturally Supernatural. You'll be fine. There's this sense, right? Where, where what is the evidence? It's this. There was no one of need. I love New Life Care and the work of Brett Lush and what he does and his team in, in providing needs to the, to the Gold Coast. It's great. But we shouldn't have to have people come to New Life Care to have their needs met. They should just be able to find a Christian. There are people who rocked up to church today and they're hurting, they're in need. And I wonder if some of us would just pray and say, God, are you calling me to shout someone a coffee? You call me to bless someone today. You call me to, to buy someone groceries. Why? Because in this church, in this place, may there be no needy people amongst us. And that is how we know that God's grace is with us. How good would that be? Let me finish with this final question. Have you surrendered your heart to Jesus? And I'll finish here today. You want to know how we beat greed, how we eliminate its power? Greed will only be eliminated with generosity. But here's the problem. It's not your generosity that's going to cure it. That's just a performance. See, our generosity needs to be a response, not an effort. So the generosity we need is a generosity from God 
who the Bible tells us when he looked at your poverty in your sin, in your helpless estate, he didn't turn to his son and say, hey, let's give 10% of your blood for the people of the world. That'll work really well. He gave it all. If you don't know Jesus today, the simple generous fact is this, is that Jesus gave it all for you. Why? That he might redeem your heart, that you might not have to leave this place with greed being the Lord of your life, but with Jesus being the Lord of your life, freed to be generous, but also to live on purpose in a greater story with a better king. There's some of you here today who are following Jesus and you're addicted to gambling. You're addicted to money. You can't free yourself from the worry and the trappings of this. Jesus says this, stop trying and start meditating on my generosity for you. And trust me, that's what will transform your heart. See, what transforms the human heart is the work of Jesus Christ, not the decision of a human in church. Has Jesus, has Jesus transformed your heart today? And do we need him to do a fresh work again?